Hey there, welcome back. I'm Ashley, your hostess for The Sharp End. I'm super happy to say that my February episode has reached over 14,000 listens. So thank you so much. And please, leave me a review on iTunes. It only takes a couple of seconds, and if everybody who listens to my show left me a review, that would be huge. So please, please go to iTunes and leave a review today. This podcast is brought to you by the American Alpine Club and sponsored by Mammut. Designed and developed in the Swiss Alps, Mammut has been making the finest alpine equipment since 1862. With a full range of technical freeride clothing and safety equipment, including the Pulse and Element Verivox Avalanche Beacons, PAS and RAS Avalanche Airbag Systems, freeride packs, shovels, probes, ropes, harnesses, and climbing hardware, Mammut outfits the freerider and mountaineer to pursue their downhill and uphill passions with style and safety. Mammut, absolute alpine. Also, thanks to Vertical Medicine Resources and the Colorado Outward Bound School for being contributing sponsors of The Sharp End. And for today's guest, we have a man named Skander Spees, who had an incident in my home state, Alaska. Welcome to the show. Go ahead and please introduce yourself. Sure. My name is Skander Spees, and I'm a mechanical engineer, and I live in Seattle, Washington. I love to go out to the mountains, rock climbing, backcountry skiing, inbound skiing, um, trail running, really all of it's fair game. And Seattle is a really wonderful place to be to do all of that stuff. So is Alaska. I love adventuring in Alaska. And uh, my first trip up there was actually for a Knowles semester in 2007 and got a lot of great skills, got to see a couple different parts of the state. Um, I've been back for a bunch of different trips since then, been up to the Brooks Range a couple times, um, gotten to do quite a few different things, so I really love it up there. And this particular incident that we'll talk about today happened in Denali. Yeah, so I've had the opportunity, a good friend of mine is a climbing ranger with Denali National Park and is a full-time permanent ranger up there. Uh, When I was um, living in Portland, he and I got to know each other and he mentioned this, uh, Denali volunteer climbing ranger program. And basically for, for people that have some of the skills and the time and the interest, um, you can apply to a program and work with the Denali national park climbing rangers to get out into the range and essentially just help them out. You know, um, park has limited resources and glacial mountaineering you kind of need a team of people to do that um a lot of the focus of those patrols is mountain maintenance so it's trash and sanitation and permit enforcement and a little bit is search and rescue so supporting search and rescue operations um and a lot of it is really cool getting to work with rangers and getting to see the mountain and getting to understand the terrain and the conditions uh it's a really fantastic program and when did you join that program Sure. I did trips through, or I guess patrols with them in both 2009 and 2011. So this is a few years ago now. A few years ago that this incident happened. So yeah, just go ahead and uh, jump right into the story there. I was volunteering as a uh, rain with a ranger patrol down at uh, Denali Base Camp. Uh, so we were in the southeast fork of the Kiltna. And it was actually just called a base camp patrol. So we were can't, we were hanging out in base camp for two weeks, um, so supporting flight operations and some rescue stuff, 
and getting people, you know, on the glacier oriented, uh, just kind of managing the base camp station, uh, managing park service gear and food and all that stuff. And so we had been, this was probably eight or nine days into a two week tour. And we had had a string of pretty consistently cloudy, damp glacial weather, um, really isothermal temperatures. So hovering between 32 and 35 degrees, very low visibility. So no, no planes were flying and we had probably 60 or 70 people stacked up in base camp, all kind of waiting for good flying conditions and good glacial travel conditions. Groups that had flown on and stayed the first night at Kahiltna really weren't traveling anywhere out of camp and a bunch of teams were coming down the mountain. This was the very beginning of June, so a very active time at Kilton Base Camp. And we had kind of been stuck in camp, and we'd been practicing pulley systems and talking about conditions and monitoring the weather. And we um, woke up one morning, and we went through our overnight logs and saw that the temperature had finally actually frozen for a while. Some of the bad conditions for travel on the glacier were really because the glacier was getting quite mushy. There was this thick layer of isothermal snow that you couldn't really get any traction in, was hard to float in. Um, we weren't sure kind of what conditions were like out on the glacier, and so we were all hoping for a nice freeze that would give, give some supportability to the snowpack. And so we decided to go for just a relaxed day tour um, out on our skis. And so we skied it, you know, we roped up and skied out of camp. And you, the Kiltna base camp is on the southeast fork of the Kiltna Glacier. And you actually ski down, uh, downhill for a little ways before you take a right turn onto the main fork of the Kiltna Glacier. And so we, we cruised down there. We were going to just turn up and head up towards Kiltna Pass um, and just kind of see how many groups that we ran into and check out conditions and no real specific agenda on the tour. We were all feeling pretty relaxed. It was myself, my ranger friend, one other volunteer. And, you know, we knew there were a handful of groups out there um, either coming into camp or having just left. And so we ski down and where you have this convergence zone with the southeast fork of the glacier coming into the main body of the glacier is a really complicated uh, piece of terrain. A lot of groups kind of breeze right through it because they're either fresh, you know, just getting off the plane and just getting started on their trip or they're exhausted and they're coming down the mountain and they're just desperate to get back to camp and take a load off. And so... I'm going to interrupt really quick and, and just go ahead and explain why you say that the terrain here is complex. The terrain, I say the terrain is complex and it's because you have these two parts of the glacier sliding, um, you know, the main fork sliding downhill and the southeast fork sliding into it. And so you get crevasses that run in lots of different directions. Um, and so it's hard to necessarily make sure that you're always crossing what you might think of as crevasses in a really safe way or safe direction. And there's also like a super, super well beaten in path <laughs> through all of this terrain because, you know, Denali sees 1200 people a year get out and climb on it. And this is kind of the gateway for most of 
the climbing in the region. So we're cruising down this super well-beaten path, and we see another group coming up towards us. Um, and so I was the first person, and there's another volunteer on our, our rope, and then my ranger buddy at the back of the rope. And I stepped off to the side of the trail just probably a foot and a half, not really thinking about it, but also not seeing any signs of concern uh, regarding crevasses. And I had just stepped off. I looked up to say hello to the guy coming towards me, and the bottom just totally went out from under me. It was a full trapdoor experience, uh, even though I was standing on an appropriately sized pair of skis for me. Um, I punched a hole straight through this thin crust that we'd been traveling on and found myself pretty quickly in, in free fall down into glacier. And, and the funniest part to me was that the first thought through my head was, man, we've been practicing glacier rescue and crevasse rescue situations back at camp for a couple of days. I'm roped up to two guys who are super well-versed this is going to be a great little live exercise. I had jumped in a couple of crevasses around camp previous to this, and I was thinking, gee, this is going to be fine. We're, we're going to have a full day training exercise. Really quick, Skander, how big was the hole? You know, it, it was interesting. It's, it was probably what a lot of people who haven't been around crevasses traditionally think of as a crevasse. Um, because it was pretty narrow. It was probably only 24 inches wide. And I happened to step like directly on top of this bridge. Oh, perfect. My, my skis were perfectly parallel with the crack. And the walls of this crevasse were sheer blue ice, you know, crystal clear, blue, hard glacier ice. And, um, you know, normally crevasses are kind of messy places you'll have walls of snow or rime ice or you know they won't just be consolidated you know super clear thick blue walls and so i fell into this crevasse and i fell down about 15 feet below the surface of the snow and i landed in water um, and bottomless water so just to clarify to the listeners here when he says that he fell into water, he actually means he fell all the way into the water, as in he was he was floating. And that adds a whole other element to the scenario when you have someone neck deep in glacial water. I really didn't expect that, and I hadn't really thought about that possibility at all. And I very quickly shifted from, yeah, this is going to be a great training exercise for my team. I've jumped in a lot of crevasses like this, cool, to oh, damn, I'm, I, this is a very life-threatening situation. This is a potentially very risky situation, um, and I could really maybe die. So that was a super eye-opening moment. Yeah, and how far, how far had you walked from camp? We were probably a mile, mile and a half maybe from camp. So a mile, mile and a half from camp, and you're – neck deep in glacial water so you're you're immediately thinking about hypothermia absolutely right you know thankfully one of the first things and we talked about this quite a bit from doing some of the rescue scenarios in camp uh one of the first things i did was start a timer so i was i had a good reference point for how long i was 
actually submerged in the water. And I figured I probably had 10 or 12 minutes before hypothermia really set in. I'm not sure how accurate that was, but that was my recollection at the time. And I knew from some of the other training that I had done that it normally takes quite a bit longer than that to really extract someone from a crevasse. And because of the geometry of the situation, my rope line was kind of cutting back through the lip all the way up to where my partner was standing. And it really, you know, there was no lip for the rope to hang over. There was no tension on that rope. It was kind of pulling me backwards onto my back and, and, um, pretty, pretty useless, unfortunately. And so I was taking stock of my situation down in the hole as soon as I, I fell in and I was trying to figure out how to tread water with my skis on, uh, <laughs> which is just not something else I had ever really thought about doing and trying to figure out, okay, what can I do to make sure that I'm generating some body heat? What can I do to start thinking about getting myself out of this crevasse? Um, even though I didn't really have a rope from above to pull on per se, I could tell that if I started really hauling on the rope that I was tied into, I was probably going to pull my partner in. And I knew from the unconsolidated snow conditions on the surface that it was going to be pretty hard for a team to build any sort of meaningful anchor. And that was definitely a key factor in how we ended up getting me out of that crevasse. Oh, interesting. Okay, well, so how how did they get you out of the crevasse then? So it was definitely a combination of approaches. I had one um, technical ice climbing tool strapped to my backpack. I didn't have a traditional mountaineering ice axe. I had two ski poles. I had skis on my feet. I had uh, Telemark ski boots on with big old duck bills on the toes. And I realized pretty quickly I needed to get my – at least my chest cavity or as much of my body out of the water as I possibly could. Yeah, exactly. Keeping, so, trying to keep your core warm as warm as you, po- you possibly can. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I was carrying a pretty small day pack, you know, probably 30 liters with some layers and some food and a few odds and ends, some rescue gear. And so the first thing I did was I, and I was relatively cognizant that I really didn't want to jettison any gear because I needed to get back to camp. So I wanted to try and keep my skis with me, keep my poles with me um, because that was going to be super necessary for skidding back to camp and getting warm quickly. And I also found that I could actually get some flotation off my backpack so I could lean back and get my chest cavity almost entirely out of the water while I was treading water with my legs. But the first thing I had to do is get that technical ice tool off of my backpack. So I kind of wiggled around quite a bit and managed to not take off my backpack, but get it switched around to my front, get the ice axe off, get it back on my back, um, and sink that ice axe into the wall really, really securely so I could pull up on that, which both generated body heat and got a good chunk of my core uh, out of the water, which was great. Uh, the next thing I figured out, that I had to do was really get my skis off. Cause if I was going to press it out on a rope or, you know, some other way kind of try and, uh, get myself out of the situation, I knew I couldn't do it with skis on my feet. That was another thing that I had really not thought about in any of the previous training or rescue scenarios 
I had thought through is, okay, what happens if you go in with skis on? That's certainly a learning point that there are some snow conditions where not even skis will necessarily give you enough flotation to um, stay on top. And so I you know, had the one ice tool in the wall that I could hang on to so I wouldn't sink, so I could fish my hand down and wiggle my skis out of my bindings. And fortunately, I had uh, leashes on, so I could kind of let the skis hang free and I wasn't going to lose them down in the water. And then, you know, I started to, I did actually make contact with my teammates above and they kind of got to see what I was dealing with. It took a little while for them to find a safe way to approach the hole that I had fell through. Um, I wasn't able to communicate clearly at all, unfortunately. So I didn't know exactly what kind of support they were going to be able to give me. It ended up being one of my partners lowered a pulley down on a rope, on a separate rope that I was not tied into. And, you know, I figured out pretty quick I was supposed to clip into the pulley. The pulley came down with a, a beaner on one end. And so I clipped into that and, you know, the rope went tight and realized they were, they were pulling on me. But I also had this ice tool and I had my telly boots on and I essentially started chimneying up this crack you know, smashing my ice tool in, pulling up on it, kicking my feet into the walls as hard as I could to kind of make some divots, trying to kind of stand up on that. It didn't go super well, but there was enough tension on the rope that even though they weren't pulling me out of the crevasse, they were, you know, capturing my progress as I wriggled out of this hole. And that worked pretty well. It also generated a lot of body heat, which I was super grateful for. And then towards this, at the very top of the hole, kind of the last three feet were through this unconsolidated snow and I had my skis dangling off my feet and my partners just kind of just kept reefing on this, this two to one pulley system that I had clipped into, which was great. And I flopped over the top of the lip and kind of fought it hard. One, one thing I was quite grateful for was that the lip, normally passing the lip is kind of the hardest part of getting out of a crevasse and this was just a clear blue ice edge that the rope didn't really eat into at all so from that standpoint it was a little bit easier um having skis on leashes you know sweet swinging for free below my feet didn't make it things any easier um and i i ended up kind of belly flopping into the sugar snow and and getting pretty cold just trying to get to someplace that i could stand up but eventually we got there and you know, it was two very funny things when I crawled out of the hole. I was obviously super relieved, but my climbing ranger friend had essentially pulled me out by himself. The middle person on our team was so close to this crack and kind of in a, a really compromised situation that they couldn't really support the effort. And there wasn't really anything to build an anchor with, so my my anchor that my buddy was pulling off of one side of the rope was tied to him. And the other side was in an ascender that he was holding onto. And he had just essentially buried himself in the snow as the anchor, no pickets, no ice screws. No, there was nothing really to put an anchor into. So he was my anchor and I was really glad for that. The other funny thing that I saw was that the team that I had said hello to, the last person in their team had fallen into a different crevasse about 25 feet away. And so they were in the middle of their own rescue effort. Um, 
And the person that they were uh, rescuing out of crevasse was also in water up to about his knees. So it didn't sound like he was quite swimming like I was, but it was also not a great situation for that person either. So there were two simultaneous glacier rescues happening, you know, within 50 feet of each other. Oh my gosh. Was it just a really warm season in 2011? It had been pretty consistently warm for the entire time I had been been on the glacier. Yeah. That's crazy that two people fell into crevasses within 50 feet of each other on the same glacier on the same day. Yeah. And so being that we were the ranger patrol, we actually, um, we got me back up to camp. I got some warm clothes on. I skinned really, really hard and I crawled into a sleeping bag as, as soon as I got back. Um, but we did do a little survey of teams that had come in and by the end of the day, from the teams that we had talked to, including my fall, we had counted 11 teams that had had full body, um, you know, full height crevasse falls fall in that day. 11 that one day. Yeah. All in the same area. You know, I don't think we had a good picture on how close proximity they were, but, um, yeah, there were quite a few falls that day. Skander, why do you think that there were so many falls that day? Like what, what are some contributing factors to what was really going on out there? I think it's a confusing piece of terrain. Another very major contributing factor is just that we had had some snowfall. Then we had a lot of isothermal weather without a lot of snowfall. Things looked very uniform and visual conditions were really bad on the glacier. So there wasn't, there wasn't, the light was super flat, you know, very often you're at least looking for surface signs to give you some indication of, of a crevasse that you're stumbling into. But if you don't have very much visibility and you have flat light, it, it can be hard to pick up a lot of those signals. Yeah. So I think very difficult, difficult terrain, um, and difficult travel conditions. But you had great partners. I had awesome partners. I, you know, if I ever, ever had to go swimming in a crevasse again that was full of water, uh, I would have those same partners. That'd be fine. Well, I absolutely hope you never have to experience that again. And so, Skander, what are some lessons that you learned coming out of this experience that you want to share with our listeners today? Um, the primary lessons I walked away with was that being on a well-traveled route with skis with a super knowledgeable team does not guarantee your safety. I think there certainly some degree of complacency between the gear and the route. I had been to that location. I'd done that route before, um, a couple times and you know, there's a super well beaten in path that I was not a hundred percent on my game, which I regret. I think the second thing is to overestimate the worst possible situation. I hadn't really thought about falling in a crevasse where the rope I was tied to wasn't useful for my rescue, and I hadn't thought about what it would be like to fall in a crevasse with skis on. I definitely had not considered falling in a crevasse that was full of water and where I would literally be swimming up to my neck in water. I think one of the things that I did correctly was to stay really calm and focus on staying calm and focus on figuring out what I was going to do to participate in my own rescue. Um, unfortunately, a couple of the other rescues I've seen in the Alaska range have involved people who 
didn't necessarily take the initiative necessary to engage their own rescue. They really wanted somebody else to come and help them. And I don't think that worked super well for them. Then the fourth thing definitely is to practice improvising, to think about your gear and your situation and the tools that you have at your disposal and all of the different ways that you could possibly apply those skills and tools and knowledge and fitness. All of those things um, are super essential. My team was incredible at improvising a super, super tricky situation. And I, I'm super grateful to those guys. Right. A good team is, is super important. Um, I wanted to ask you about you putting leashes on your skis. I've never heard of that. You know, in that case, I had Silveretta bindings. And so it was in my telly boots, honestly, because they're just the most comfortable touring boots that I own. And you're mostly touring. You're not really skiing hard. Um, and the telly boot fills, fits into a Silveretta binding really well. I honestly just had long pieces of parachute cord, just regular accessory cord that tied from you know from the binding down to my feet not not at all a releasable leash not a elegant leash to use i think i did have little like clips on them that would clip and unclip little hardware strip clips but it was a it was definitely an improvised setup of sorts i guess what inspired you to put leashes on your skis i mean is that a normal practice for a glacier travel um that's a good question Honestly, it's it's probably from some experiences I've had with my telemark bindings, where traditional telemark bindings generally aren't supposed to release. Turns out if you jump on them hard enough, they will actually release, and they don't have brakes on them, so you'll lose them down the mountain. And you know my my Dinafit skis have leashes on them just in case they pop off. You don't want to lose them down the mountain, and it just kind of always made sense to me to have leashes on them. I had definitely not anticipated the possibility of needing to ditch my skis in a crevasse yeah interesting i that's that's i mean it came in handy you know it i am super grateful those are the two most important pieces of accessory cord i've ever tied (laughs) yeah i mean it 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 probably saved you from being severely hypothermic on that one and a half ish mile hike back to camp so that's a really good pro tip really if if that helps anybody else that'd be awesome well, what an experience, Gander. You're, you're pretty lucky. I definitely consider myself super lucky for the team that I was with and the good luck that I had in many ways. That was, you know, I think I should say, too, first and foremost, it was my own error in not being super vigilant that got me in that spot. And I'll admit that first. Great advice again. Well, Skander, thank you so much for being on the show and being vulnerable enough to share your experience with, with others. Thanks to all you listeners. And if you have a story you want to share on the sharp end, send me an email at accidents at americanalpineclub.org. This episode is sponsored by Mammut, Vertical Medicine Resources, and the Colorado Hourbound School. Vertical Medicine Resources is an innovative climbing medicine company. They recently came out with a new book titled Vertical Aid, Essential Wilderness Medicine for Climbers, Trekkers, and Mountaineers. You should check it out. The Colorado Hour Bound School has been changing lives through challenge and discovery for more than 50 years, offering wilderness expeditions in Colorado, Utah, Arizona, Alaska, and Ecuador. Courses range from 8 to 81 days in length for ages 12 through adult and include backpacking, mountaineering, 
rafting, canyoneering, and rock climbing. Visit cobs.org to plan your next adventure. Until next time, play hard and be smart. <laughs>